tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today we are talking to Roger Christian, one of the initial hires ever on Star Wars. We talk all about the props he created, from Blue Milk to Fritio's Eyes to, of course, the lightsaber. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 4, Roger Christian. Today, I am joined by one of the original pioneers behind the original Star Wars movie and, and so much more, uh, Mr. Roger Christian. That's okay. Hello to everybody. So maybe before we dive into actual Star Wars, maybe let's talk about how you got in to this kind of world. I know you've talked in the past about comic books and the life you led before. Yeah, that it was just something you know we all come through we're not sure what we want to do and I, I used to watch Saturday morning cinema when I was young I was basically trying to find what fitted with me and with the usual my father said you can be an architect a doctor or a priest that was it and I, that was not for me and I got out of school went into art school and developed from there and uh, to survive I used to put up marquees these big tents in all all over southern England for a company. And one day we were putting up big marquees in a place called Black Park, and there was a, a concentration prison camp built. I went over because it looked, I thought, what are they doing here? Why are they building this outdoor prison? And I spoke to the guys and they said, no, it's a film set we're building. And I said, but it's so real. <laughs> and they said, yeah, there's a, a tramp, which is a, a homeless guy comes through every lunchtime and gives us some food. He thinks we're prisoners. They said, no, it's Pinewood Studios next door. And I got in, I went at lunchtime when we had a break, got under the fence. We couldn't get in there, obviously. And, and um, I watched a section, the doors were open, and we saw, um, I think it was the first Bond film being shot. And there was something that happened, an alchemy happened. And I went into the prop room and I saw all these gold bars and they were all fake. I was going, oh my God, this is only plaster. And, and that gave me a key something happened that day in me the smell i don't know what it was and i thought i've got to be part of this i've got to be part of this industry <clears throat> after huge numbers of reject letters because i knew nobody i didn't have any connections and um one only one single producer had the kind of foresight to send me a letter and he said you should go to the architect school and learn architecture because you've done all the art if you're going, and I would go into the art department, it'll be easier for you. That's the route in, but you need to know how to draw and do this. And in my naivety, I just thought, how am I going to do this? And I got into Oxford School of Architecture. They accepted me, and I did two years there and came out and thought, now I got to get a job. And um, I sold a car I had because I was so broke, and that led to a job. <laughs> The uh, guy who picked me up, I was hitching, going from a little town called Maidenhead, where the art school was, back to Reading, where I lived. And he was an architect, and he had somebody in his team worked on Cleopatra because it was such a huge movie. They were hiring anybody to help. And he said, I'll phone me in three days, and I did. And he said, this man has agreed to help you, and he set you up an appointment. And just to go back a little bit, the two films that made me want to go into this industry that I saw in London one day together were 
Dr. Zhivago and uh, A Man and a Woman, a film by Claude Lelouch. Dr. Zhivago just blew me away. It was such an amazing visionary film and the performances, I mean, everything. It was just like, to me, it was the perfect film. And my appointment was with a man called Charles Bishop who um, looked after the entire Ice Palace, which was a huge endeavor in Dr. Zhivago. And very nice man, Charlie. He looked at all my work and he said, look, I give you a job. I'm just finishing this TV series called Department S. I would take you on and I, I don't know when I'll start another one. But I've set you up an appointment here. I've phoned to John Box and, in Shepparton. So you go and see him this week. He made an appointment for me. John Box is the designer of Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia. So there I was in Shepparton with my folder in front of it almost was like my hero. <laughs> and John, bless him, looked at all my work, shut it up. He said, look, I'll give you a job. Are you prepared to make the tea? And I said, yeah, tea, whatever you want. He said, all right, we have a big art department for me. You'll have to phone me every week. I don't know when the full green light is coming, but I will give you the job. And he said, but here, let, let me tell you what the film industry is. You're in the desert. You've got a bottle of green ink in your pocket and you're standing next to an aeroplane. And the director and producer arrive, they go, wow, this is great, perfect. Can you have it read by tomorrow morning? <laughs> and he said, you either talk your way out of it or you do it. That's the film industry. And those has lived with me forever. And um, so John took me on and, you know, I got eventually promoted and put on to drawing. And John mentored me in a strange world that I came into because it was very structured in those days and that it was a job and you were expected to go in T-boy then you get onto a drawing board you'll be on the drawing board for 10 or 15 years and then you can work your way up maybe when you get a lot older you might get a job as a designer and of course I came from art school and I was in a place where they were all in ties and jackets and short hair and telling me every week to get my hair cut and <laughs> shape up. And I would discuss all these, you know, I was an avid cinema going, I'd watch in London art films. And there were about, I don't know, 12 or 14 pure art cinemas in London then. So I could see a different film every week from all these great European and Russian and uh, Japanese. Kurosawa was my mentor. Mm. And they just look at me blankly and said, you know, stop talking about all this rubbish. Well, and the only person who mentored me through was John Box. He was very kind to me. And I just decided that wasn't the route for me. I wasn't going to spend 25 years. So uh, <laughs> I got a job in a TV company that was changing into the present ITN. They had a six-month offer to me to come in and be an assistant designer and basically everyone in the art department on Oliver said, your career's dead. Don't do that. You can't go to television. Don't do it. And I did it. And within a few weeks, I was left alone on a huge period TV series. The designer said, I got to go back to the studio. You just look after the director, whatever they need, the dressing, whatever. You're on your own. And uh, that's where what I loved, you know, and I was designing stuff and it just went on quickly like that until um, really till I came through kind of many independent films and interesting. I was working with very interesting designers who came out of the BBC who were all young that I wasn't part of this old structure. I was making whatever films I could. I was doing, I did the first um, 
film i think it was the first music video actually a friend of mine had a band and he <laughs> asked me if for 50 pounds i could make a film on his band because it could go on a program called old gray whistle test the bbc was starting and so i made it somehow we got it done wow. and i i was using any money i would save on a film and commission a play and i put on a play in london we did quite a few big things till really the point of luck that came when i was asked to go to Mexico on a film called Lucky Lady and John Barry was designing it and through a whole process of Fox analyzing George's film and saying they'd only give him they, they estimated the film would gross 12 million dollars so they said as a we'll give you four million dollars if you can make the film for that we'll go back it. Gloria and Willard Height were friends of George's and college with him and they they did some background character work for him on the script on, on A New Hope without credits. And they wrote Lucky Lady mm -hmm. and they said to George, if you, you, he was told, Gary Kurtz, that London were half the price of America. And Peter Beale, who was the head there, said, we can make the film for $4 million. So Gloria and Willard said, you should go down, George, to see what they're doing because it was a 20s rum running film and we were converting buildings into old sets and they were very old and used and that's George's aspiration was to make a kind of western world so he came down and met us and I got hired there John Barry and I and the original DP Jeffrey Unsworth were hired from um, Lucky Lady and we got to London and read the script and thought oh my god how are we going to make this for four million dollars I broke down my set decorating requirements that it was impossible because of the way I come through and what I've done and everything I think outside the box so I just thought of ways how we could do it same with John Barry and John took uh, John took um, George to Tunisia and there was tattooing there it was and all we had to do was add some bits mm -hmm. to it <laughs> and there was this ancient but futuristic landscape and that made it possible because it was so cheap to go there. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I hated science fiction guns in films that I'd seen. They just didn't add up. And so mm -hmm. I went on my own to a gun hire place and got a Sterling and, that could fire and stuck bits on it. I thought, you know, George has described Hans' gun as a kind of Western future instrument. So I found the Mauser and stuck some other sights on it and called George over and said, you better come and see this thinking I'm either going to get fired, I'm completely on the wrong track here, or these are work, and they work. George loved them, and then he <laughs> stayed with me, and we made Princess Leia's gun, and I, I sourced every gun like that from original guns that could fire and work just by sticking bits right. on them to change it. And they could rent those, and we could duplicate them for fights, so they were incredibly cheap. You know, I, I couldn't go through the process in a right. studio of getting it drawn, putting it in the shops, metal shops and plaster shops. We didn't have the money for that. And then I applied the same technique to the sets. I just said I could buy airplane scrap. Nobody wanted it in that time. There were mountains of it. And I bought airplane scrap and really built all of the interiors out of airplane scrap and drain pipes and um, PVC piping. And my buyer was buying anything with the telephone exchange closed he bought the lot inside and was getting me skips full of calculated bits and anything junked I, I was getting and breaking down I had to I had to train a train of a team of prop men who'd never done this into how to do it and that I think I had two hundred thousand dollars for my entire set decorating budget which covered vehicles it covered 
the weapons. It covered all of the interiors, exteriors, all of the dressings in in uh, Tunisia, everything. It was normally not enough, but the way I scrounged and did it all, I came in under budget. John Barry was over budget, exactly the amount I'd come <laughs> under. So he, he called me in at the end of the film and said, wow, you've just saved me because we balanced our books. And the way you did the dressing, you, you saved us the amount of money exactly <laughs> that's incredible uh, again all of this is detailed very heavily in in your incredible book cinema alchemist type yes. of books um, i just finished it and it is it is an incredible just not only learning how to think and how to behave on a movie set but just the amount of creativity and innovation that had to occur before this movie even started shooting that you and george did together was was an incredible feat well, I, I wrote it because it's not a, like an ego book for me or what I did, what I did. I wanted to give a blow-by-blow blow account. And, and the 100% the feedback has came, come saying, your book has inspired me. And that's my goal in doing this to show, you know, here's this universe that's now in its third and fourth generations and getting bigger and bigger. And it was initial budget was $4 million. It was nothing. And we had to think right outside the box. And so did John Dykstra, who basically invented motion control. And he invented and he invented a computer. They didn't exist mm-hmm. um, to do it. Richard Edlin, John Barry, who's really the unsung hero of Star Wars. And Ralph McQuarrie, who there's nothing about him, very little. There's books, nothing on the internet, nothing. He was so shy. But this man, you know, all that George brought to London for us to start with were six paintings of Ralph's. That was it. That's all we had. There was no reference in those days. Ben Burt, who, you know, and Ben, you know, anybody else would have gone out, got his synth player out and made spacey (laughs) sounds. Ben went out and recorded pigs and dogs and bears. Right created an organic so basically without five or six people in absolute truth if they hadn't gone outside of every convention of the day hadn't followed their own dreams and made something work with no money star wars would not have been made i'm now doing a a documentary called behind the force and i'm outlining all of this interviewing these people because it interests me why you know i know why i did it what happened right. to me. I want to know why these other people did what they did and where this all came from. And also, there's a question that you ask, what was your reaction when you first saw Star Wars? And the entire world that I've ever asked said, it changed my life. And mm-hmm. I'm really going into this, what happened? Why? Because it's unique. Yeah, and it's incredible. There's a lot of, you know, like the the Rinsler books and stuff have all yes. kind of detailed it, but but at the same time there's so many stories that like one page of a Rinsler book can take up an entire entire book on its own, right? So I Exactly. Think, I and think John's my is- um yeah, John's my um he's my main kind of reference guide for the for where well, he edited the book. I mean, he turned my right. 600 rambling pages into a book for me he's brilliant and now he's he's our main advisor on the on the on the uh, documentary one of the things i'd love to kind of do to structure the rest of this is maybe just talking about different bits of iconic you know props or or things that you worked on and and we can we can do it kind of blow by blow because a lot of these things that were just almost um not really focused on in the main movie are now recurring plot points or, or very iconic pieces of Star Wars, like, they are. like, the, like the dice, right? The dice for Han Solo is yes. now going to be in two more main Disney movies. And, and maybe yep. talk about that and your, your thought process behind putting the dice in the Millennium Falcon. 
Yeah, I mean, I that was the first set that I did. Harry Lang was an art director who did 2001. So George mm-hmm. put him, uh, sorry, um, John Barry put him on the basic cockpit. And he did it fairly 2001-like, but it was the Millennium Falcon. I basically went in and messed it up. I go in and, you know, I'd found old fighter pilot seats and I put those in and I was adding bits to make it what it should be. The Millennium Falcon is a piece of junk, as as is stated in the first film by Luke, and repaired. And, you know, this, this was George and my first conversation, that that's how ships should be, oily and dirty. And So I messed it all up. I got it looking like... I wanted it. George approved it. He loved it. And then I was down there and I said, George, I had a thought. Um, American Graffiti was very lucky for you. And in Ron Howard's car, there was a pair of dice hanging, which everybody had then, especially in America, right. hanging in their cars. So I said, I think we should hang some in there. It would be very suitable for Hans's character. Plus, it's good luck. And George said, that's a good idea. Okay. <laughs> and I got six pets. I got the big fluffy ones, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> down to some chrome dice, and he picked those, and that was my favorite. So I hung those in. We had a pretty not very supportive director of photography for George on the film, Gil Taylor, and uh, he took them out. So they were only ever in one shot in Star Wars in the first one. So J.J. Abrahams had picked this up, and the story had come out from the book and a few podcasts I'd done and stuff. So the story was getting out. J.J. had, I was told through somebody listening to, I did a um, Reddit AMA, and um, somebody came in while I was doing that because I I said, you know, they've disappeared. And he said, well, have you seen the Vanity Fair cover? They're there. And there they were. (laughs) And JJ, apparently, he told me, had got an assistant searching for months and found exactly the same original. And they went back into it. And then in that film, that scene was cut out. Right. (laughs) They were this kind of enigma. Then, bang, now they've turned up as a plot point. The only change they've, and I think they didn't look very carefully at mine, they're now gold. Mine were Mm. actually silver. And I think they changed the, the numbers are now like alien as right. opposed to as opposed yeah. to the American. Yes, that's yeah. right. That is uh, one of my favorite stories because the dice have always been kind of a, a legend in a in a kind yes. of folklore kind of thing for Star Wars fans, and it was right. so great seeing it and then seeing it in the solo trailer pop up again. Yeah, and you're like, oh, yeah, they is, come. I know. Yeah, we're back. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite <laughs> stories from your book is you kind of mentioned McCory and his paintings, and my one of my favorite stories is how you looked at his painting of C three PO as inspiration for his eye. Yeah, I, I, um, we, we, we were just put in perspective when, when the film, when we we worked for four months with George, Mm -hmm. sorry, I had to just say this to to qualify that four months in London at a tiny studio that was John Barry, myself and Les Dilly. And that was it. Mm -hmm. And we worked for four months to working out how the hell to make this film. (laughs) Fox only greenlit it on December the 22nd. So we started in the studios with the crew's, coming on board on January the 3rd, I think it was. And we were shooting in March. Now, for a science fiction film this size, you know, now you'd have a year preparation. So we really met. I had an office a few doors down from John Barry, and there was one spare one in the middle with a table. So I got tea bags and a kettle and some milk. And we had McVitie chocolate biscuits because the the entire film industry runs on those things. (laughs) I have packets of them. We would meet in my office every morning at 7.30. 
or seven and have tea because it was often the only time we get to speak. Everyone was so hammered of time. And, you know, I was working 16 hour days as John was, everybody. And it was in one of those morning meetings that I opened my mouth (laughs) (laughs) and said, you know, I've always hated these eyes on robots and stuff because they never look real. And if you have the real eyes, it doesn't look real. And yet, you know, what fake don't look real. And I said, I, I've got an idea. If I could like a um, police interrogation room where they have a one-way mirror, mm-hmm. I said, if I could one-way mirror, then you'd get the reflection of the world around, which is correct. And they could see out. And they went. They all went, oh, that's a good idea. You do the <laughs> eyes. And after they all left, and I thought, why did I say that? <laughs> I had so much to do. So I, in the end, I got my bar, I got all the drawings, and I said, okay, we, we, I got the exact size. I got my guy who worked with me, the buyer. I said, I need a company who can uh, manufacture the grid eyes in brass and a ring at the back to hold it all together. So he found that for me. He found me some very thin, we called it perspex, it's Mm -hmm. plexiglass, but very thin ones, which I cut round and I sent them out. He found a company and they one way mirrored it. Wow. And I made a little hole in the middle that would be a pupil hole. But so Anthony could see out, not very well, but he could see through the one way mirror and through the center dot. Mm -hmm. And then I was stuck because Ralph McQuarrie's her eyes they lit up George really wanted that and I could not find and by sheer chance as I was doing this late at night before going to sleep on television there was a documentary on um, the very first camera they used to go down inside a body and I rushed in the next morning I said Peter these can't have been hot find me these medical bulbs so he found them through he had contacts in hospitals he found them and we managed to buy some and I drilled the sides and I put three in and then put it all together and it worked. Our problem was then having to have, you know, in those days you didn't have tiny batteries. We had to somehow disguise the battery pack inside C-3PO. Mm-hmm. But we managed to do that. So they would light up. And I noticed they're the same in um, Empire. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same. So I'm with the documentary I'm making now, Behind the Force, I've got... I'm going to London soon mm-hmm. and I'm going to film the eyes and I'm going to try and break them down and show everybody exactly what I did. Cause I think that would, it, it is another special story about it. And it's, you know, these are all new things right. that are coming out. Maybe he's still talking about the droids. I know you had a very important hand in, in crafting R2D2 and especially how Kenny Baker would fit inside of that. And maybe talk right. about that and talk about the dummy droid you had to also bring to Tunisia as a, as a secret almost. Reading the script, we, we all realized if George didn't have these robots, he didn't have a film. Mm-hmm. And we, we knew that with the right actor, we could make C-3PO because basically because of Metropolis, he'd already done it right. in Germany like 20 or 30 years before that. Um, we knew that would work. But Looking at Ralph's painting, R2-D2 was just about four feet. That was his maximum height. Radio control in those days was very primitive. So we knew, based on looking at, you know, silent running and 
different films that if we could find somebody small enough to be able to operate it, that would be the way to go. And we put pressure then on George and said, you've got to cast somebody. And they finally found Kenny Baker, who was three foot eight, mm-hmm. and, and he was strong enough to do it because that was also very important. And he was a comedian. They had, they had a comedy act, the two of them, Jack Purvis. So he had a good nature. So I hired a carpenter, Bill Harmon, who used to make all of Monty Python's props and sets. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, they really had no money. Uh, you know, they couldn't even afford horses on <laughs> Holy Grail. Bill still got the coconuts that they used. He cut in half the coconut. They used those. So he came on board and he built the first wooden mock-up. That was the first thing we ever did on Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And we made one and then made it smaller. And uh, he said, oh, Roger, I can't do the head because we had no money. Literally, Bill had that Marine Pry at home. In his workshop, we had no money to buy anything, mm-hmm. nothing. I found a um, lamp top in a scrap heap in the old lamp um, hire place for films, and I got Bill to buy it for 10 shillings. And we cut out the inside of it, and that fitted perfectly. So I went to a, a place I knew, and I got some airplane nozzles and uh, other bits and pieces and stuck those in. And then George wanted the little arms on the front, he could hang onto a pole or do things. And again, Bill said to me, Roger, I can't do that. You do it. So I sat at home one night with a pen knife and um, carved out one of the little arms. (laughs) And that stuck in. There's a picture of that in Rinsler's book. Mm -hmm. And we stuck that in. And they basically remained the same ever since. And then the most difficult task was getting Kenny to move it right <laughs> so we built you know the legs he couldn't move it we kept cutting more bits out he was always complaining it was mm-hmm. hurting him we cut more wood out we tried to get it so he could even swivel the head and then uh, we got his boots and stuck those inside the bottom of the legs so mm-hmm. that his feet went in those he still couldn't move it he could shuffle it but he couldn't move it um, and by, I don't know why, I just, I'd bought a few bits and pieces myself and I found an old fighter harness, mm-hmm. fighter pilot's harness and, uh, brought that in and we fixed it inside the shell, the wooden shell. So Kenny could wear R2D2 like a rucksack. Wow. And we were all there. George was there, Gary Kurtz, everybody. When he took three steps <laughs> and, fe- and he fell over, we knew we had a film. Right. And uh, th- that was a fairly major moment, I think, when that happened. You know, and, and thank God George was an independent director who made THX because anybody else would have fired us. I mean, <laughs> we made the mock-up of the land speeders. We had to get the size right, and we made the third one was much smaller. As George said, he would have had a small sports car, and they were all sitting on top of it. They couldn't fit in it. Bill Harmon, the first one we made with wheelbarrow wheels and old bits of plywood and stuff he had. And we made the second one and then they the effects boys who weren't on the film yet, but they had an old Volkswagen and they cut the top off and brought the chassis over and then Bill welded up onto it and we made the land speeder like that. Wow. You know, when Gary Kurtz's wife came mm-hmm. You know, we were we were in a tiny studios. There were rats. They used to catch the rats in the morning. And it would fascinate fascinate George. <laughs> and she said, "Wow, this sure ain't Hollywood, is it?" <laughs> but because George is an independent director, basically we didn't get fired. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite sets in Star Wars, and it's 
not very it's not a, a major set in any way but it's baru's kitchen and i just love yes. and i know in the book you kind of detail a little <laughs> bit about the dressing you did and even the vegetables she's cooking and i would love just to hear you kind of tell that story as well yeah i had to you know john very cleverly thought it out that they're on a very distant planet that doesn't really have much mm-hmm. It would all have been assembled in containers and taken out there and also for strength. So he based it on an airliner cabin. Mm -hmm. The shape is exactly that. And then he built it. And I had to kind of go in and make it look like a kitchen. And I'd already been to Tunisia and seen this set where we would do the part where they're eating and seeing the old roof and all the stuff like that. And I thought, you know, I've got to find stuff. So Tupperware was very, fairly new then. Mm -hmm. And I got a ton of it in and really liked a lot of the shapes. So that went in as basic stuff. And I I dressed it more like an airliner interior because I thought that's how it would be. Mm -hmm. And she was cooking. I thought, I can't just have a saucepan on a stove. That's not going to (laughs) work. So again, you know, the jet engines and my airline scrap, I mean, basically most of the cantina is out of bits of old engines right. and i used i i found a really nice shape ones and i used that for what she was cooking with so we could put steam in it mm-hmm. and bok choy which is the chinese vegetable right. in those days was very unknown in england chinese food was only just coming into the uk then so i thought well that's exotic we found that in a chinese store we used bok, bok choy for <laughs> to be <laughs> cooking with and then of course came the uh, blue milk so I had to create that, and believe me, I tried so many things. And even blueberries, you think, oh, that's obvious. You put it with milk, it mm-hmm. curdles. It doesn't work. And so I found some color, eventually found something that could turn it blue, and they could drink. And it was a cochineal, which is a, a kind of organic food coloring that was really fairly new then. But I'd found two colors that mixed together would make the blue. I didn't know, really that it would be so prominent when we were out in Tunisia and there it was on the table yeah. and that's become quite legendary. That has. <laughs> Maybe uh, one final story before we get into just the lightsaber is I, I love the, the discovery that you had for the, the fossil, for the crate dragon in the desert and, and how you kind of discovered that. <laughs> Again, that was in a Ralph Macquarie painting and we thought, well, that's a good idea. Um, and I thought, well, I can't afford to make that. <laughs> And Frank Bruton in the prop store at the studios in Elstree, he said, go up, there's an attic filled with props. And he said, I got to get rid of it. Basically, we're we're consolidating our space. So that's got to go, go and have a look. And I went in there. Wow, there was stuff I wish I could have kept it. There was the boat from Moby Dick, a Mm, model. I mean, that was just filled with incredible legendary props. And then I found that skeleton of a dinosaur, Mm -hmm. huge from a dinosaur film that disney had made so i said can we get this down and we got it down i i laid it out in the parking lot there's pictures of that i laid it all out and called george over and he said oh that's great so we we just took it out and i laid it in the desert that got left there robert watts said you know we we just don't have the money to take everything home leave it right so people have been finding those bones still right yeah from the sand dunes (laughs) And I found the bodies in there, too. I found two skeletons, and I, I was able to use those for Uncle Owen and Aunt Beryl. Right. I dressed them up in some rags, and we burnt them and did all of that. So, again, this was all free props. He said, no, take it, because I, I'm going to get rid of it. It's going to be junked. So things like that saved my bacon, and it also created the right look for of the course, film. Of course, the worn, dirty, just 
Flash Gordon look that everyone was used to. Exactly. So finally, of course, you know, you're the father of the lightsaber and the story is, <laughs> the story is a legend at this point with the Graflex. And so maybe just kind of detail that a little bit because I, I love it so much. Yeah, originally in the script, of course, it was called a laser sword because mm. we were British. <laughs> <laughs> so it became the lightsaber. That one drove me mad, you know, because once I'd got, I, I, I would take every piece that I liked and thought, wow, this is a cool object. Everything that I would find from my scrap and stuff we were getting, and it went into my office. I had so much, they moved me to a second office because I was plundering, basically, you know, anything. I had nothing that would be, because when I read the script, you know, I, I was really, um, my education, everything was mythology. That was something I loved. And I recognized George's kind of reverence that he wrote into the script towards myth and legend. And of course, I, I knew that this lightsaber was the Excalibur for Star Wars. That, that was a very important. And I thought then, you know, if anything becomes an icon of this film, if it works, then that's going to be it. I couldn't find anything with that gravitas that I knew was right. The special effects boys made some metal kind of torches that George rejected. They're in the book, Rinsen's book. They, they, they look very basic. They're not, they didn't have that iconic feel. And I was being pressured because everything was going out to Tunisia to start shooting. And they kept saying, you've, you've got to get something because it's not used in the desert out there, but it hangs on Luke's belt. And it was, again, sheer destiny because I, I, I put together Luke's binoculars and I used three different camera parts. I'd broken down cameras and found them and I stuck them together with super glue. And I thought, these look really cool, but what I need is two lenses on the front because right. I've got to give the audience an immediate visual that these are a form of binocular. So I went to the camera hire place in London that we got everything from always. And I got my two lenses. And then I, I said to David French, the owner, I said, do, do you have anything in here that might be interesting, like flash cameras or something? I need, I need to find something to make a lightsaber with. And uh, he said, well, there's a ton of boxes over there on the bottom shelf. I haven't looked in them for 10 or 15 years. I don't know what's in them. And it was literally the first box I pulled out and covered in dust and took the lid off and opened up the tissue paper. And there were these Graflex handles. And it was like, literally like I'd found the Holy Grail. I just looked at them and thought, these are so beautiful. And they're exactly a lightsaber. So we got the lot. I raced in my car to EMI. I, I got a little bit of T-strip left over from building the blasters. And um, I stuck seven of those around it to make a handle at the bottom because I had to change it. And by, by sheer kind of, again, luck, I, I was breaking down some old calculators and I'd found the bubble strip in the calculator that magnified the numbers. And it fitted perfectly in the clip that used to clip it to the camera. It changed that. It gave something to it that was a bit more, you know, interesting. And I put some chrome tape around the name and called George over and said, I think I found it. And he came and held it in his hand because it's heavy. And he just smiled. And that's that's your biggest, that's the biggest approval you can get from George. Right. So we just added the little D-ring on the end so mm -hmm. that it could go out to Tunisia and hang on the belt. And I made quickly made two for them. And then I made some more after that because uh, we had to build, I had to build one for the special effects boys. Right. They added, I came up with the idea because I'd used, blue screen material for different art projects. Mm -hmm. And I said, if we put a wooden dowel in it, 
paint it blue screen, it might pick up a bit of light on the set. The DP argued and didn't want to do it. In the end, we forced him to do it. Mm -hmm. John Steers put in a little tiny motor and instead of it just turning, he set it a fraction off center so that in a way it, the blade kind of shimmered. Mm -hmm. And it worked. It, basically, there was a bit of light came off it. Um, and it was enough for some of the rotoscopers to get an idea of it. And also, you know, it's very, it's all there on YouTube where, right. where Darth Vader is fighting with Alec Guinness. And you can see they hit the sticks because that was an early kind of um, agreement that when we were thinking about it, they shouldn't go through each other. There should be the energy would block mm -hmm. so that it had more of a traditional sword fight for the audience to relate to. So they would hit with the sticks. <laughs> of course, they were breaking all the time. They got through so many dowels, I can't tell you, because they, they were always breaking. You know, But that's that's basically probably $15 and a bit of super glue. And I, I made now the most iconic prop in the history of cinema, I think. I, I wouldn't argue that. Yeah, that is that is true. I've been and then now I'm trying to I've been trying to find a Graflex of my own for years just to mock up one of my own and it is impossible, so I appreciate it. Yeah, well, I, I'm going in with the documentary to meet David French again because he still rents out cameras for movies, and, and that that Graflex comes from a press camera, so he's got lots. He rents them mm -hmm. out. So, and he said to me last time we were in communication, he said, "You've ruined my, you've ruined my." <laughs> My my company because I used to buy these things for fifty bucks. Right. Now they're thousands of dollars, exactly. and I can't get them. I can't replace them when they get lost. So I'm going to go and interview him and uh, surrounded by press cameras. And I also love yeah. that story. My father worked for TI for Texas Instruments too, and that's part of the the calculator. So I always I always like yeah. That well, that story. see with the book because me it was junk. You know, I had, a, I had a skip full of calculators. I'd break them down and you, oh, this is good. Oh, that's a nice bit. So it's only the fans. When I was writing the book, one of them came forward and said, we know exactly what it is. That's it's great. a Texas instrument. Name the model, everything. Mm -hmm. I was able to put into the book <laughs> <laughs> what I'd done. Like the camera parts, they worked out all of those, the parts for um for the binoculars everything mm -hmm. they'd sourced everything so i was able to correctly name everything that was all down to the fans one final question before before i let you go uh, and, and maybe just kind of your return to the saga right so you, you came back and helped george on phantom menace as well and i would love to hear just maybe your overall impressions or how that was different you know so many years later going back to the same kinds of sets that you inspired so many years before yeah, it was, um, you know, I, I, George was doing second unit on Return of the Jedi mm. and he decided he needed to spend more time with the um, with the director. So they called me and I did, I think uncredited, I did six weeks of the second unit on, on Jedi. When I, I'd been called to meet Rick McCullum and George, mm -hmm. I was mixing a film in, in uh, at the Zoetrope Studios in San Francisco, up in Oakland. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I went up to the ranch, met with Rick. We had to sort out some credit from they were doing for the DVDs. And mm -hmm. then I had a long talk with George about, because he was going back to directing after such a long time. And um, Rick came in after I'd been talking and, and George said, you know, on Star Wars, there were only five people stood by my side throughout that entire film. And Roger was one of them. And I, I thought, well, that's a very nice compliment. And it's true, we had. <laughs> right. We had stayed by him. The, the crew thought it was a pile of rubbish. Um, 
we spoke and they said, come and see us in London when, when we were back in Leavesden because I was going back there and I went and I went up to see them. And they said, oh, Gavin, the designer wants to meet you. And I went to meet Gavin. He said, how do I deal with George? He doesn't say anything. He was all panicking. <laughs> and I said, he'll smile. If you're right, you smile. And if not, you just keep going. Don't worry about it. Keep showing him stuff. He's not going to say, I want this, I want that. And then the set decorator said, I don't know, how did you do it? I <laughs> I had an hour with a set decorator and told her what we'd done and everything. And then the DP, David, I'd started in the industry. I, I was doing commercials in Italy, big ones. And uh, I took him down when he'd just done rough demos mm -hmm. and stuff and gave him a big job. And then he, he said to me, why aren't you doing second unit on this film? There's only 12 weeks to shoot. It's a monster, this film, mm -hmm. and it needs a proper second unit. And I said, well, I don't know. I, I'm pretty busy. But by the time I'd gone back to re meet Rick... McCullum again he kind of got it it was buzzing in my head so I, I said to Rick who's doing your second unit he said oh we don't really need one on this film you know we've got oh, 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 we've got Ben Burt said he'll do a few shots for right. us and everything and I said all right well Rick look you know I'm family put my name down because I always part of this I love this world mm -hmm. and um, I can see you're doing the same as we did on the first one on a bigger level but it's the same kind of um, atmosphere and then I went back to work. I'd gone to Vancouver, finished something, came back to London. And I got a call one day when I was in the fitness club, uh, health club, and Rick said, what are you doing? And I said, <laughs> I'm having a piece of toast, actually. And the moment, he said, well, drive up here now. So I drove up, sat down with George and Rick, and they said, were you serious about offering second unit? And I said, you know I'm serious, yes. We need a second unit. We've looked at it and the schedule, and that's it. George has to leave on this date. He has to start ILM. Right. And so they said, how do you work it? And I said, George, this is what I do. Because I said, second units are a huge problem because normally they're all out to impress the producer and try to get work and they don't do what you want. And mm -hmm. so what I have is a little clamshell, which was a little tiny video monitor. I said, I go, we film stuff. They show me while we're shooting and we get exactly what we want. Right. Rick, buy those right now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that. And then they said, well, can you do it? And I said, yeah, I've got to go back and do the um, grading on a film in Vancouver. And they said, no, no, you have to start now. And they said, we're going to leave the room. We'll give you a few minutes. You have to give us your answer. Wow. <laughs> so so I, I called the DP and I said, can you go and do that? And he said, yeah, I can take care of that. So I, they came back and I said, okay. I can do it. And Rick said, come with me. And they'd already set up my office. He said, here's your assistant. Here's your office. Wow. <laughs> they were ready. <laughs> they were ready for it. And then they explained, we had a huge meeting and we as second unit had to be first unit about six times mm -hmm. because the schedule was so tight. We had to go in first and set the tone and the lighting and everything. And, and the two crews were the two young indie crews. Right who leapfrog each next one episode and then they'd leapfrog. So David was the main DP, Giles was the second DP. So I had Giles and the team and they were already blooded after six years, I think it was, of Young Indy. And the crews were great. You know, Rick had got them all trained and they were really good. And so it transpired then and I could see what was coming down the pipe. And, and uh, 
after a few weeks and after uh, you know being in Tunisia, I was begging for a second unit shot, like a switch being switched. Right. <laughs> I was shooting with all the main actors. We were shooting and I in the desert in sixty to sixty two degrees one day. Wow. I was shooting fourteen hour days. You know, I got a lot of the Darth Maul fights. George did the main dialogue, but then every bit of R2-D2 and the C-3PO meetings, everything, right. he said, you do it. You've got much more patience than me for right. these things because he likes to do a couple of shots and move on. And with R2-D2, you can't do that. So, you know, the world, I'll I tell you the relationship, and it's quite simple. Uh, with Rick McCallum, the, the budget was $110 million, I think, which is pretty small for that huge movie. Mm -hmm. Rick had it budgeted in Hollywood. He said, just give me a budget. It was 400 million. So it just shows you it was still handled as a low budget movie. And George and Rick were always telling me they, they were never convinced. They, they thought they'd get their money back. That was about it. They didn't know it was going to work again. Right. The biggest difference was I could buy scrap airplane. I could buy engines and a half an airplane for 50 pounds. i because of that and Alien and what came beyond, I'd obviously created this huge industry in Britain. You couldn't buy scrap. You had to rent it very <laughs> right. expensively. Rick brought the scrap in from the Texas graveyards mm -hmm. and flew it in. It was cheaper to bring it to Tunisia and London than to rent it in UK. The atmosphere was... It was still felt like an independent movie, you know. There weren't hundreds of producers on set questioning everything. George had autonomy to make what he wanted. And he'd retain that. And I think that's, you know, that's how these films have stayed on track. You know, the vision of Star Wars, and George created it all, right. everything. We served that vision, but George created everything. And in those first six films, they were innovative. Everyone was more innovative. And you have to go back and look at Phantom Menace. I know it's got a lot of critics, but Phantom Menace pushed the envelope on special effects. Look at Watto. It had never been done before. There was this amazing creature for real. And Jar Jar was too. And George, you know, it's interesting as well because you ask any nine-year-old almost who's their favorite Star Wars character and it's Jar Jar Binks. It always was. Right. As a seven-year-old in 1999 who dressed up like Jar Jar Binks for Halloween, right? right? Yeah. I, I can attest to that. And, right. and, and George has always made every Star Wars film for nine-year-olds that's who his target audience is he and he always told me he said it's not my fault adults like it as well <laughs> <laughs> so jar jar is the ultimate children's fantasy he steps in poo you know right. and he slips up and he falls over so he um he was a character that george was trying to add some kind of humor for children but the film itself when you look the pod race sequence and i got to film a lot of that it's just incredible. You take that sequence alone, it's an amazing piece of filmmaking, I think. I, I definitely agree. I, there are a lot of critics of Phantom Menace, but I am not one of them. I think what what he did for Phantom Menace and, and how that's changed cinema in the past 20 years is it doesn't it goes unsaid often. Like You have Andy Serkis now doing Planet of the Apes, yeah. and, and, but Jar Jar was the first. Jar Jar was the first CG yes. character in a main plot line. He wasn't just like a one-off. Yes. And it's uh, yeah. it's an incredible thing to see, and I, I'm so glad you were able to to come back and be a part of that and kind of see your legacy yeah. realized once more. 
very it was great i loved it yes. i love being you know it's my world these things i love it even there's a little yeah, scene of right. anakin putting the the eye socket back into c-3po and you're like well that's yeah that's it right there you know so that's what it is yeah and i i got to film that the meeting of r2d2 and c-3po mm-hmm. i got to film that whole sequence incredible and there's that line naked what do you mean naked that <laughs> carrie fisher wrote that wow line. and i said to the crew then you realize this is cinema history we're, we're doing. You go back into the past. This is the meeting of these two characters for the first time ever. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Very, very <laughs> cool. Um, Mr. Christian, I don't want to take any more of your time. I could I could talk to you for another hours and hours. We'll have to do this again. That's all right. Well, we'll do some more, yeah. Of course. You know, we're starting work. I'm going to London in about a month to, uh, to start filming. So we're going to do some pretty exciting stuff. And Ralph McQuarrie, we're animating his paintings into as he saw it, because my friend Paul Bateman has inherited Ralph Macquarie. He does all of the um, books, he sells everything, and, and Ralph taught him to paint. And so he carried on the legacy, So and he knows Ralph better than anyone. So he's going to repaint some stuff. We're going to do all sorts of exciting things with him. Uh, in the meantime, um, everyone should definitely buy the book, Cinema Alchemist, Titan Books. Again, it is I've read so many Star I'm looking at every Star Wars making a book I have on my shelf right now. All the McCoy right. books you just mentioned, all the Rinsler books. And this this stands apart as just a very detailed, very personal look. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. the publisher did nothing with it. I've done all the stuff myself to get it out there. And it was, you know, we, I was kind of hounded by uh, David West Reynolds, mm-hmm. who was the original head of literature at to make it he said roger you're the only person who was there right from the beginning right through you had a major influence you've got to write this book and i had to take two years off to write it um but i thought you know i've got to do it um because try and answer all these questions every convention i go to and things i'm asked the same questions all the time so i thought i'll put it down so now we're going to make a a documentary that it's not a star wars documentary it's not a making of document there's enough of those right. and there's enough with george telling his story and all of that but not what's gone on deep behind it i'm going to try to bring that legacy of star wars to the screen i now. cannot wait you can just hand the fans the dvd and say just watch this right <laughs> yes yeah that's what my intention is and to inspire you know i mean inspire people to go and do it this they, they look at this huge world and think wow how do i get into that well it was a group of rebels right. basically with no money made this film so i want people to understand you can do it that's a great place to end thank you so much again for for taking the time it was great to meet you um, and great to talk to you. And I hope we can do this again sometime. Not at all. Nice to meet you. And that will do it for this episode of Talking Bay 94. Again, I want to tell Mr. Christian thank you for the time and the stories he told from the set. For more information and updates about the documentary he mentioned, go to rogerchristian.ca or buy his book, Cinema Alchemist by Titan Books. If I didn't mention it enthusiastically enough during this podcast, you should seriously consider it. It is an incredible read. On our next episode, we're going to the prequels with a man who has seemingly been in every Star Wars movie, Don Bees. So stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and until next week, may the force be with you.